those months when I was pregnant, all around the same time. So we had in tandem the conversation of, he won't be given security, he's not gonna be given a title. And also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What? And who, who is having that conversation? There is a conversation. Hold up, hold up. There's Stop several right now. There are several conversations. There's a about conversation it. with you, with Harry, about how dark your baby is going to be, potentially, and what that would mean or look like. Ooh. And welcome to Two Steps Ahead podcast. Two Steps Ahead podcast, highlighting the stuff that's been stepped in so you don't have to. I'm Son Edom, and on the show, we're going to address a couple of issues. The first one, as you may recall from a couple weeks ago, when Meghan Markle and, uh, is he still a prince? Prince Harry sat down and talked with Oprah Winfrey about all kinds of different things. But as you heard there from the clip, the accusation came out really of racism, there was a conversation with Harry about maybe the the color of the skin of their to-be-born baby who became Archie. They are currently pregnant with a uh, another baby. I guess it's going to be a girl this time. But the idea of racism continues to keep uh, cropping up all over the place in in the news today. The most recent trend is this stop Asian hate Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've seen it on social media. I know recently, I think within the last week or so, there was a guy in Atlanta that went into, I guess, three different massage parlors and shot the people that were inside the massage parlor, and most of them were Asian. I know there's been other incidences throughout the last year or so about uh, Asians and issues with them and people beating up on them and people discriminating against them and, and all kinds of things because... The coronavirus came from China, and so a lot of people are kind of relating this virus with Asians, although if you were really smart about it, you would realize that China and the Chinese people are different from Japan and the Japanese people, Korean and the Koreans, and so forth, and that uh, if you take a look at the continent itself, you have people like in India, they would be considered Asian. And so the idea of racism, skin color, skin tone, where did it all come from? What's happening? What's going on? And, and why is it now all of a sudden this stop Asian hate? I see a lot of it on memes on social media. I see a lot of it on the Internet, obviously, is, is where there's a lot of it. I don't watch a whole lot of news anymore. I gave up watching the news because the news never really depicts the true story of what's going on. And so as I'm going through all this stuff about stop Asian hate and Asian discrimination, it makes me sad, first off, to realize that this is still going on. But it also is sad because do people really care? I know they care, but are they really going to do something? If you were with us last week, we talked about wokeism. And what's like to be woke? And to be woke basically means that you're awake. You're aware of your situations. You're aware of the cultural, political, and societal issues going on. And yes, we do like to be aware of things. But a lot of times when we talk about discrimination and we talk about racism, it has to do with a black-white matter. Black skin color, white skin color. And usually the white skin color is discriminating towards the black skin color. And that's what has become known as racism. 
But now we've gone a bit further, and we've gone into now the Asian community. I recently was up in San Francisco and went through Chinatown because I wanted to see Chinatown. I've never been to Chinatown in San Francisco, been to Chinatown in L.A. And when I was there, there was a lot of police, a police, a police presence, really. And I was curious as to why there was such a, a big police presence in Chinatown because I had not yet been aware of the stop Asian hate or the discrimination or the violence really against the Asian community. And that is exactly why the police were out in force. In fact, I was stopped to take a picture and they wanted to know what I was doing. I said, I'm just taking a picture. And then it was like, Hey, by the way, can you change your spotlight a little bit this way and maybe tilt it that way? Cause it's great lighting for my picture, but there's a real, a real need out there for people to be aware of what is going on in all communities. It's not just a black community. It's not just the Asian community. There's all kinds of communities that are suffering from racism. In fact, racism knows no barrier. There's no boundaries. Racism can be anything. Anytime you take something and you ascribe it to the color of skin, you're starting to deal with racism. There's a clip that I came across from a guy who's in uh, South Africa, I believe. And he had an interesting take on it. Now, we've heard before about the social construct of racism. Is racism a social construct or is it an inherent construct? And so this is what he had to say. And this is what I like to play to kind of start the conversation into racism. Now, we're not going to be able to solve all the issues tonight. In fact, I'm not really planning on spending the entire time on this issue. But I think there's some things that we need to point out that we can touch on to start the conversation, to start the dialogue. Try to understand what it is. And I've got some ideas that I'm going to suggest might be the problem and the root of racism. And you may or may not... uh, Think the same thing, but you might not know what I'm going to say. You might think you're going to know what I'm going to say, but I don't think you're going to really understand what I'm going to say until you hear it. So let's play this clip. And again, the guy is from South Africa. And this is what he had to say about uh, racism and how it is compared to the social constructed racism that we are dealing with today. How are we defining each other? You see, Racism is a socially constructed entity. And why I say it's socially constructed is because if you study history and you'll notice that the time when Charles Darwin came up with the theory of evolution, and I call it a theory because it's just a theory, it's not necessarily scientifically proven. But what is interesting is that it was from that time on that people began to associate race with skin color. In the past, before that, People would talk about different ethnic groups. So people would talk about the English race, the Scottish race. They would define race more as ethnicity rather than skin color. But what happened is a lot of people have embraced an evolutionary approach to race. So they start thinking that some people are more evolved than others, therefore more superior to others. But we need to remove the issue of skin color from it because it's scientifically proven that we're actually all from one blood. In other words, it's been proven and it's a fact that there's actually only one race, the human race. Then there are various ethnic groups within the human race. What I find very interesting is if you look at the history of South Africa, we have a situation where intellectuals got together and decided how they were going to categorize 
various people. So they came up with about eight different categories for your so-called colored people. And those people began to internalize that. When I speak to my so-called colored friends, they'll say, yes, you know, in the townships as we were growing up, you could smell the smell of those burning hot combs as people tried to straighten their hair because it was seen as more superior if your hair was straighter than your friends who had curly hair. And we started noticing people actually socializing along those lines that had been socially constructed for them. Yet that very same person, if they go to the United States of America, would not be categorized in that particular category. So it doesn't make sense to me why we've internalized something that was socially constructed by people who were not necessarily thinking accurately concerning this notion of race. Now, just to clarify, he is from South Africa, and he is a black person in South Africa. I know South Africa, a lot of history there has white people involved in South Africa as well. So he's speaking to his fellow people of color, along with everybody else, as he mentions in the clip. A lot to digest. The first thing that I thought was interesting was how he um, relates ethnicity to heritage. We take pride in our heritage. We take pride in who we are. We take pride in where we come from. That's our heritage. Our ethnicity just happens to be where we come from. Like Scotland, you're Scottish. England, you're English. If you're Norway, from Norway, you're Norwegian. If you're from France, you're French and so on. Okay, that's your ethnicity. And then your heritage comes along with that. So at what point in time did we start to talk about skin color? When did that start to matter? And as we look at that and we realize that when you start to get the skin color, it really breaks down the ethnicity, the heritage, the history of things, and it puts it into a socially constructed view. Who started that? Now, he suggests maybe it came with Darwin. And then Darwin and his theory of evolution, there's a hierarchy, there's the stronger than the rest, there's the survival of the fittest and so forth. But when you start putting the skin color into things, you start getting a superiority. Now, of course, through the course of history, Europeans, white people, tend to have had more control over the rest of the world. You think about the British Empire. You think about, well, with Spanish, with the Spanish Empire, would that be something? You think about the Roman uh, Empire, out of Rome. So if you're looking at the history of the world, yeah, a lot of times it's the European that dominated the world. But then you look to China and you look at all the dynasties that came out of China and what happened there. So now again, we're starting to socially construct some things, okay, as to why we're creating this racism based on the color of skin. And then, of course, you have slavery, and slavery dealt a lot with, as we know, the Europeans bringing over black people from Africa to be slaves in the new world. And so then you start to develop this whole idea of a socially constructed racism. Now, that's not excusing the fact that racism ex exists. But I like the way he put it there when you're talking about heritage and ethnicity. Because what you do when you look at someone's skin color, you're starting to judge them based on their skin color. When you look at them through their heritage and their ethnicity, now you start to value them more and you start to look at them as someone with substance. That's how it should be. It should be that we look with, we look at all people with value and substance. All people are created equal as far as we look the same, skin color removed. We all look the same pretty much. We all act the same pretty much. We all speak a language. There's a lot of similarities. We all bleed red. We all eat. We all have to drink. We all have to maintain ourselves with the basic necessities to stay alive. Disease knows no racism. They don't know boundaries. Disease affects everybody the same. 
just like a lot of things. And so when we start to look at racism, we start to put it together, we start to realize that value of a person goes beyond the skin. And as we look at people's heritage, we look at their ethnicity, not their skin color, we start to give value on them. The other thing was, when you look at skin color, you're starting to talk about the more evolved person, the more superior person. And that could be subjective. And why is that? Because there's no value. There's no set of intrinsic value to the person and what they mean to us. And so when you look at everything through society, it's always skin color. You take a look at other things. Okay, he goes in that clip and he starts talking about things like straightening the hair. When you straighten the hair, that meant you were something a little more superior than, I guess, the people with curly hair. Okay. And so women in South Africa wanted to start straightening their hair. You get to America now, that tradition or that superiority or that value isn't there anymore. But let's look at some other things. Okay. Let's look at white collar versus blue collar jobs. Why are they considered white collar? Why are they blue collar? Immediately you start to think that white collar is more superior, more educated, make more money, probably live in nicer homes, drive nicer cars, and you start giving them this stereotype of what you think a white collared person working a white collar job is. Maybe they're on Wall Street, maybe they're bankers, maybe they're lawyers, businessmen, things like that. Then you start to look at blue collar jobs. What is a blue collar job? Well, maybe they're a construction worker into welding. Maybe they work down at the docks. Maybe they're truck drivers. Maybe they're school teachers. Maybe they're police officers. Maybe that's a blue-collar job, first responders, grocery store workers. And you start to think about blue-collar jobs and what they entail, and you start to think about the people that are considered blue-collar workers, and they're maybe not have as much money. Maybe they don't live in the nicest areas. Maybe their cars aren't as expensive. Maybe they don't shop at the most expensive places. And you start this divide between blue collar and white collar based on the value of the person. And the value of the person is only defined by their job. Now, there's some truth in the fact that maybe a white collar person is a lawyer, a banker, maybe somebody that has a little bit more means than the rest of us. But there are a lot of blue-collar jobs out there that would be considered blue-collar jobs that make a lot of money and have very good livings. What about an entrepreneur? What about someone who's a business owner? What if you own a a, a liquor store down on the corner market? Is that a blue-collar job? Is that a white-collar job? Is there gray-collar jobs somewhere in between? So we start to look at it, and you start to think on these things. You start to realize that It becomes down to the value of the person, and it comes down to the heart of the person judging. And that's ultimately where it begins. It begins with the heart. It begins with what's our heart like? If our heart is hardened towards other people, then yes, we're going to value other people or devalue other people accordingly. If our heart has compassion, remember last week we talked about wokeness, and there was a clip that I played, and it talked about kindness is radical. It talked about having compassion on other people. And there are a lot of things that started with the heart. When we take a look at our own heart, we look at people in a way that's going to reflect our heart. If we have a loving and kind heart towards other people, we look on maybe people that are panhandling and we might have compassion for them and help them out. Or we might look on them as disgusting and with disgust and we don't help them out. We're judging based on the heart not on their perception because you've got two different people looking at the same person and you're valuing them or devaluing them. And they're the same person, that homeless person, that person of color, that Asian person. It doesn't matter. 
they're the same person, but we're the ones that are looking at them and we're the ones that are going to decide whether or not they're worth our time, whether or not they have value, whether or not they are something or someone. And unfortunately, that's what it comes down to a lot of times. It comes down to people taking a look at somebody, judging them for who they are, and then acting accordingly. What if we acted the same towards everybody despite who they looked like, despite who they wore, despite what car they drove, and we took all those tangibles out and we started treating them and looking upon them and acting towards them as if they were just people? You know, we think about the golden rule a lot of times. If you remember the golden rule, it's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Would you want to be mistreated based on the color of your skin? You know, in this world of politics, racism is everywhere. In fact, it's gotten so crazy that recently Elizabeth Warren said that the filibuster, which if you don't know what a filibuster is, it's a parliamentary procedure in the Senate that allows the the political party that's not in control to kind of have a say and have some power in the way Senate goes. She came out and said that the filibuster is racist. There's people calling math racist. And now racism is everywhere. It's in everything. Dr. Seuss books, there's racism. Mr. Potato Head, there's sexism, maybe racism. I don't know. There's all kinds of things that are being labeled racism by people who have checkered past. Remember Elizabeth Warren for years, for decades probably, her entire career said she was Native American, enough Native American to matter. And then it turns out that was a lie. But yet she used that race card to try to help her advance. And now she wants us to believe that a parliamentary thing in the Senate is a racist thing. People want us to believe math is a racist thing. And so at what point do we start looking at people and not looking at the socially constructed concept that is causing all the problem? You know, Steve Harvey, I like to play a lot of Steve Harvey because I think he has a lot of good things to say. He had an experience in college that taught him a lot. And he expresses that in this clip. But then he goes on to give us some valuable lessons on how we can try to overcome racism and try to overcome those things that separate us based on the color of our skin. See, until we start caring about one another and empathizing and sympathizing with a person that's different from us, none of this is ever going to change. I grew up in an all black neighborhood. The first time I had any real dealings with whites on a regular basis was at Kent State University. When I walked into a room and I had three white roommates. So two weeks later, after sharing space with these guys at room, I happened to be walking through the lobby. All three of my roommates were in line. I didn't know what the line was, so I walked up to them. I said, hey, man, what y'all doing? What y'all going? So what y'all signing up for? They kind of put their heads down, and then I saw the sign, room change. That kind of hurt me a little bit. Because I went, damn, man, y'all just don't want to live with me? And then one of them who's an attorney now, and he and I are friends to this day, he said, hey, man, I just don't know how to live with a black person. I said, well, probably going to have to get used to it because I think think there's a lot of us here, and I think we're going to be here for a while. And so then he said, hey, man, but can we still be friends? I said, for sure. I learned a valuable lesson from them guys, and I think they learned something from me. But you know what I did? I forgave them. I didn't even really understand forgiveness. I just knew that they didn't understand me. But it's okay. One of them said, man, unless you change, you ain't going to ever be nothing. 
because I was just so immersed in where I was from. Well, I hope he has a television set. (laughs) Because I did change, and if we all change, we can all be something. We can all be something better than we are if we are just only willing to change. Change and forgive. Change and forgive. Now imagine if you were in that setting, but you were Steve Harvey. And there were three people that you were going to room with. And you went up to them and they were in line. And they wanted to change rooms. Or let's take it into something completely different. Let's go back to high school. Let's go back to middle school. We go to a new school. We have to meet new friends, new people. What happens? People start to judge us for who we are start to judge us for what we look like, how we sound, what we eat. The lunchroom can be one of the most brutal places on planet Earth when you're in school because a lot of things go down in the lunchroom or at the lunch tables, out on the playground. And so when you take a look at it from a perspective of all the other things, not just skin color, but when you go to a different school, when you move into a new neighborhood and you got to meet new people, new friends, we're all being judged. You get a new job. I've bounced around the country a few times getting different jobs here and there. And when you go into the, the new place of business that you're employed, people are judging you. They're looking to see what type of person you are. They may or may not like you based on how they look at you and, and how you dress where you're from. A lot of people, when I left Los Angeles years ago and went to radio jobs across the country, the first thing they would think was that I'm from LA, so therefore I am this, something negative. Some people thought it was cool, but others thought, oh, he thinks he's probably better than us because he's from Los Angeles. When I went to uh, Iowa and then to Nebraska, It was a little different because I had come from Iowa now to Nebraska. And then when I came back to L.A., I actually had somebody tell me when I was working in radio, because I'd worked in radio. I left California, Los Angeles, to go to radio in Iowa, and then from Iowa to Nebraska, and then Nebraska back to L.A. So I grew up listening to L.A. radio. I knew what L.A. radio was all about, and I knew how L.A. radio was supposed to go. I had my visions. So when I was working on a show, I was implementing these visions. Now, my whole thing has always been... My standards are higher than those that are expected of me because I expect myself to have perfection. I go and do these podcasts. I expect perfection. I don't reach perfection. That's why I'm always striving to do better. I don't have a talk about raising the standard. I don't have a settling point. I got to keep raising, keep raising, keep raising. Kind of like Tiger Woods getting back out there on the golf course and, and the putting course when he was in his peak a few years ago and he changed his putts. Or maybe Kobe Bryant getting out there after he's won a few championships and tweaking some things at the free throw line so that he can get better. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get better, always improving, always getting better, always to be on top. But anyway, so I'm at a radio station here in Los Angeles, and the boss tells me one time, because I guess he was critical of something that we did, and he said, this is an Iowa radio. I know it's not Iowa radio. Dude, you came from Denver. This isn't Denver radio. We can do things here and try to do things and try to make something successful. It might take a risk, but here the guy thought I was trying to do small market radio. So he made some assumptions based on where I had worked. Now, it's not the same as racism, but that's what we're doing. We're basing assumptions based on people and not on who they are. If you give someone a chance 
Like, let's say if those guys, I guess Steve Harvey mentioned that one of them, they're still friends. But if those guys gave Steve Harvey a chance, they might have learned some things from him. Steve Harvey might have learned some things from the guys, his roommates, those three roommates. But instead, they ran off and wanted to change rooms because they didn't think, at least one of them, didn't think and said they couldn't live with a black guy only because the color of his skin. Now, there's traditions, there's customs. I've known many people that have gone off to college and don't get along with their roommate. It's natural. It's going to happen. You put people in the room together for an extended period of time, and, yeah, you're going to find out quickly whether or not you're going to get along with somebody. And if you do, great. If you don't, that's fine. So it doesn't necessarily always come down to skin or skin color. But you notice Steve Harvey, he said, if we uh, sympathize with them, and we have empathy towards them, and we have understanding, then we can make change, and change comes. And we start to understand the other person. When I went from Los Angeles to the Midwest, the cultures there were a little different. They are a lot more friendly. I had to get used to that. I'm used to people like minding my own business, and you mind your own business. And there's people there that are like, hey, come on over. I'm like, well, I'm going to go mind my own business. I'm like, no, 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 come over, come over. Um, okay. And then you're like, you feel bad because you're like saying no to their kindness. And then it fosters this, oh, you're from LA, you're snobby. And it repeats the process. Right. And so there has to be an understanding of like, Hey, I'm the type of person that sometimes likes to mind my own business, nothing against you. But then there's other times, Hey, I want to come over. When I first moved to Iowa, my neighbors, it was funny because again, I'm from Los Angeles and I went to Iowa. Now, in Los Angeles, I grew up in a part of town where there was a lot of different people, especially a lot of people from Mexico. And so when I got to Iowa, bought a house, my neighbors were Mexican. They were actually from Mexico. They grew up in Mexico. When they were in high school, they went to Texas. They moved to Texas. And then when they turned 18, they got married and they moved to Iowa because they loved the snow. So here's a typical, for me, a typical Mexican person is somebody that lives in Los Angeles likes warmer weather because Mexico has warmer weather and they want to enjoy their culture a lot more than maybe the American culture, which is fine. We all do that, right? I mean, when I think of going to somebody's house, like I was when they invited me over, I'm thinking, okay, maybe we're going to have some carne asada. Maybe we're going to have some tacos, maybe some burritos. And I'm thinking of all this food that we're going to eat because they're from Mexico. Now they were a number of years older than me. So they had been in Iowa for a long time. But I'm thinking my version of what a Mexican dinner is going to be like. Well, when I got there, I had fried chicken, I had mashed potatoes, I had corn, the all-American meal. And I kind of chuckled, and the guy was like, you know, hey, what's funny? And so I told him that story. I said, hey, I thought you guys were going to give me carne asada and all this stuff. And he chuckled, too, and he said, yeah, no, we're Americans. And I'm like, no, no, it's not that. It's just that, you know, in Los Angeles, where I came from, that's... Mexicans, that's what they eat, that's their culture, that's their food, that's what they enjoy. And he's like, yeah, we have that too, but we really like the American food. And so there again, my expectation was based on who they were and their race. And what I got was a delicious meal, regardless of who they were. Now, I don't think that was a bad thing because that was just my expectation. But it got me thinking that we can't just always judge a book by its cover. You can sure tell much how it's going to cost, but you can't always judge a book by its cover because we don't know. And so when you start to think at this uh, stop Asian hate that's going on right now, we have to start to realize that racism goes beyond black-white. Maybe it's black-Asian, maybe it's white-Asian. We don't know, but it's because the virus comes from China. We're going to automatically assume that all Asian people are bad. 
It goes back to the heart. How we think in our heart is how we're going to be. What's in our heart is how we're going to treat other people. If we're going to treat other people with kindness and compassion, if we're going to have empathy for them, if we're going to have uh, sympathize with them for understanding, then we're going to affect change and communication is going to affect change. And we're going to really start to enjoy a lot of different things. One of the things that I learned that I think is a part of the Mexican culture, I don't know if it's culture-wide, but somebody who was from Mexico told me this about popcorn. Okay, you sprinkle lime on popcorn. You get plain popcorn, you pop it, you sprinkle lime on it and put tapatia. Now, never in a million years would I ever thought to do that. Never. Now, I like it. Now, every once in a while, when I got that kind of mood for that tapatia lime popcorn, I'm going to do it. But I never would have thought of that. So just in the food industry, I mean, look at Chinese food. I like Chinese food. There's a lot of things that I like about uh, about Chinese food. So there's a lot of different things that I'll try. Look at the culture just in food that we can experience. What about cultures in general? When I went to Chinatown in San Francisco, I was looking at, and it's, it's big. It's bigger than, I think it's the, the biggest Chinatown in the world outside of actual China. And so there's a lot of things that were really cool there from the culture, from the, from the art, from the restaurants, from the stores, the people. I mean, just a lot of different things that you can appreciate. They had the, the lanterns hanging, uh, from the streets and it was just a cool vibe being there and it was nice to experience. But if we start to all think to ourselves, like my way is the right way, my way is the superior way, we're going to miss out on a lot of those things. We don't know what it's like to walk in another person's shoes. And until we walk a mile in their shoes, we're not going to understand what they're doing. So we shouldn't judge them accordingly. Understanding others is the key to different cultures, different ideas, different people. And when we break those down and we start to value people and look at them for who they are, we're going to start to realize that people are valuable. People are worth something. Just like we teach ourselves we have self-worth, others have self-worth. I want to play something. It's a, uh, a personal story of somebody who experienced racism. And it's, uh, it's kind of heartfelt, and it hits. It hits home. Imagine, put yourself in her shoes, and you'll understand. Well, you'll get a better understanding of where she's coming from, I should say, because unless you experienced racism, you probably don't truly understand. But listen to what she had to say in her story. There were everyday protests and people, white folk, men, women, children, standing alongside the road, swearing, throwing rocks, and the kids having to go through that every single day was extremely traumatizing for them. My sister-in-law tells a story of being on the bus and sitting next to a girl when a brick came through the window and it, it, the glass hit the girl in the eye and there was a real fear as blood streaming down. She's traumatized watching this. That was the kind of thing that the students faced every day on their way to school and coming back home. So there were white students who were, coming, who were actually attending the school. They did come to school and there were constant fights. Um, that would erupt and the police would have to be called in. It was chaos in the schools and in other communities like South Boston where early on like the white students just refused to go to school. Charlestown was the same thing. Those kind of things really affect like one's perceptions of self, of other, 
um, do, am I able to trust white people? You know, we're talking in the 70s. And now we fast forward, it's 2019. And what are the ways in which things have changed? And what are the ways in which things are still the same? In some cases, it's not a brick and it's not a rock, but it's a word. Anyone who's lived long enough, we've heard that before. We've seen it, we've experienced it. The more things change, the more they stay the same, and that's, that's sad. And it's sad when it's not just in the world, but it, when it's in the church. I came away with a sense of racial trauma, of not feeling secure about who I was as a black girl. Um, did I actually have a hope in a future? Um, those things were in question. And, and so in that school environment, I learned that there was something inherently wrong with me. And no amount of whatever, education, et cetera, was going to fix it. So here's a black woman growing up during the busing era, integration of blacks into white schools. I'm always curious, why was it the blacks going into white schools? Was there ever a time that whites went into black schools and it was kind of like reverse integration? But she's telling the story of the things that she experienced, the violence, the fighting, the brick throwing, people not going to school, not wanting to be around her. Think about the battered puppy syndrome. You find a puppy or a dog that's been abused. It doesn't trust anybody. It takes a long time for that dog to break down those fears of humans again. And it takes a long time for them to warm up to another individual loving them. Imagine now is that happening to somebody. If you were a uh, sexual abuse survivor, you probably don't trust men if you're a woman, if you're female. You probably get uncomfortable around other men because of your experience. So imagine that now in the racial aspect, the skin color, just based on the color of skin, people are throwing bricks at you. People are fighting you. People are not wanting to be around you. All because of the color of someone's skin. You don't have a choice on how you were born. That's the thing. That's the thing that's so fascinating. I can understand a lot of things about why we hate people or about why we don't want to be around somebody or why we discriminate against others. But why is it skin color? We don't have a choice. You know, Red Barber was the Dodgers play-by-play announcer on the radio when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. And he was kind of instrumental in Jackie Robinson eventually being accepted because he didn't give a perspective. He just reported on what was going on. He could have sat there and said, you know what? I don't like Jackie Robinson. I don't want black people in the major league, so I'm going to talk bad about him. We get that a lot in media today. A lot of media will insert their opinions into things, and it affects how people perceive that thing they're talking about. It influences them all the time. But Red Barber will admit that he just reported it. Now, he had a problem with it at first, and I'm going to play a clip and let him tell his story about Jackie Robinson breaking into the bigs. But it was interesting because, in the end, he just reported what was going on and let Jackie do the talking. But because of the way he approached Jackie Robinson coming into the league and not taking a negative opinion, because Red Barber was from the South, from Mississippi, so he grew up 
with the blacks in slavery, with blacks are less superior people. They have their own bathrooms. They have their own food places. They have everything. They're a less superior person. And so when uh, the Dodgers were going to bring in Jackie Robinson, it blew his mind that this was going to be somebody coming to the Dodgers and playing baseball. And now all of a sudden he had to take a check of himself. And this is what Red Barber had to say. Of course, it was a shock to me when Mr. Ricky told me in confidence that he was going to bring a black player. He told me this before the Avenue Robinson was coming. He told me this in March of 1945. And he didn't come in touch with Robinson himself until late that year. But I knew Mr. Ricky when he said he was going to do something, he was going to do it. And I had to examine myself. Of course, Mr. Ricky gave me time to either make up my mind to broadcast properly through a very stormy period or quit. And my first reaction was, when I came home, told Lala, that I said, I'm going to quit. I don't think I can go through with this. And she said, well, very wise woman. She said, you don't have to quit right now. Let's have a martini. And I began to think about it as the days went by. And I had to understand that it was by chance that I was born white. I could have been born black. I could have been born uh, to any, any parents, any place, any time. Judge Landis was not dead. And as I wrestled with myself, I heard the voice from the grave saying, report. And that's all there was to it. That's all, the, all I did about Robinson. I merely reported him. And he did the rest. So he reported him. And did you catch that? He said in there he had two choices. One to report properly or quit. He wasn't about to go in there and bring his own opinions to it. If he was going to do it, he was going to do it properly or he'd quit. And so what did he do? He went home, told his wife. His wife said, let's have a martini. Think it through. And that, maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe it's not a martini, but maybe it's something else. We need to take some time to think it through before we quickly lash out and judge somebody based on the color of their skin. You may judge them based on a lot of other things, and that's probably a topic for another time. But based on the color of their skin, why do we do that? And again, here is Red Barber, grew up in Mississippi, and everything that went on in the South, in the Mississippi during history, in fact, going up to even the civil rights, wasn't good. It wasn't good if you were a black person in the South, and if you're a white person in the South at the time, you had carte blanche probably to discriminate against a person of color. And so he checked himself, he examined himself, and he decided that he was going to change and he would report properly. And as he did, he just reported what Jackie Robinson did and let Jackie Robinson do the rest. And because of that, I think people helped. And there's another story that I read, another book uh, a while back, that talks more about that. And it really did have an impact. Red Barber really did have an impact by his reporting, people accepting who Jackie Robinson was. Just like when Vince Scully, who was a longtime Dodger announcer, when Fernando Valenzuela, came into the league. The first prominent baseball player from Mexico to really become, you know, this superstar, Fernando Mania, and Vince Scully, the way he embraced that. Now, Vince Scully would never be racist, and of course, you know, this was a whole you different, different thing between Jackie Robinson and Fernando, but it's kind of similar because everybody embraced. You go to Dodger Stadium today, it's completely different 
now at Dodger Stadium than it was before Fernando Mania. Fernando Mania is kind of like a Jackie Robinson story, although maybe not the oppression and everything that he faced, but the city of L.A., especially that Spanish community, that Mexican culture, that Mexican heritage, adopted the Dodgers and embraced the Dodgers after Fernando Mania came. And the way Vince Scully embraced that, and he promoted it, and he talked about it in his reporting properly, he could have sat there and said some negative things. And we've heard broadcasters say negative things, racial slurs, homophobic slurs, all different kinds of things. It goes back to the heart. Now, I'm not judging those people because I don't know their story, what they said, things like that. But you have to check your heart because where your heart is and what's on your heart and in your heart, you're going to speak. If you have hatred in your heart, you're going to speak hatred. If you have love in your heart, you're going to speak love. If you have compassion, kindness, good things in your heart, if you're a good-hearted person, good things are going to come out of your mouth. You're not perfect. None of us are. And on occasion, We may slip in our anger and say something we regret, but that's the difference. We're going to regret saying it versus those that will say something with no regret, something mean, something nasty, something racist, and not regret it. So we have to check ourselves, examine ourselves, change, sympathize, empathize, have understanding. And if we start to do that and we start to come together, then we will realize that we are people. We are not race because we're all the human race. We are not skin color. We might have ethnicities. We might have heritage. We might have culture. And it might be different. It might be unique. There might be things about it that we like and we don't like. But it doesn't mean we have to discriminate or do hateful things against them just because we don't like it, we don't understand it. So stop Asian hate. Stop discrimination. Comes down to checking yourself. And that's how we can change. If each of us checks our heart and changes our heart, And we change the way we treat others. We do unto others as we want them to do unto us. I think we can affect change and we can start to attempt to squash out racism from a grassroots level as to opposed to a political level. Now, the other thing I want to talk about, which I find something that's kind of a little bit lighter hearted, I hope lighter hearted is even an expression. So, Last week, I guess a, uh, a police commissioner in New South Wales, Australia, mentioned the idea of a consent app. Consent app is basically an app where you and your, I guess, lover will digitally consent to having intimacy. And so the police commissioner said that this might be a way for people to decide and really know if they want to move in that direction or not, because they were having a lot of problems with consent and sexual crimes and things like that. So we thought this would be a good idea, at least to talk about it. He got some pushback, which I would understand, because it's not probably the greatest thing in the world, because there's a lot of issues to it. But I applaud the effort to think about some of these things. Now, consent apps have been around for a while, and there's a couple on the market, so you can go to your app store and check them out, but, um, you know, whatever. And so, uh, but I thought it was interesting because when you take a look at this uh, consent app, and this is the whole, this is, this is the police commissioner, and this is what he had to say that got this whole kind of consent app frenzy going. This is one of those issues that we need to face, and, and we need to have the conversation about consent. We need our kids to have a better understanding. We need our juries to have a better understanding in relation to that. 
we've spoken about technology and, and does that offer opportunity? Because we know technology now is more people meet using technology than they do in bars and other locations. And can that be something that assists us try and keep people out of the justice system who are starting relationships and or friendships? We do know in many of these cases the victims are women. Sometimes, yes, they are men. They often go home after being out with someone they think they can trust and, and then the issue around consent and sexual violence occurs and we've had 15,000 women come forward and that number is growing exponentially and we, we need to do something about it. So we got some pushback on that. I thought the idea was novel. You can take some proactive steps to try to stamp out and try to save and try to protect victims, right, before it happens. A lot of times when the police get involved, it's after the crime has already been committed. And then there's the he said, she said aspect to it. And then it's like, okay, what really happened? And with at least in the American judicial system, it's supposed to be beyond a reasonable doubt. And so a lot of times justice will not be served. So it's a it's a concept that even though it might have gotten some pushback, it's interesting. At least he's proactively thinking about things. So here was a, uh, so if you're not really familiar what the consent app is and you don't really understand maybe what it is. Meet Joe. Joe and his partner Sarah want to express their love for each other. To ensure they're both on the same page, they need a way to show their consent. Fortunately for them, there's Safe Consent. Safe Consent is an app that allows both parties to obtain consent for sex with their significant other. To do so, users simply sign up with their email address. After login, the users register their thumbprint in the app via the phone's fingerprint scanner or by taking a photo of their fingerprint. Couples can obtain consent whether they both have the app or not. If one party doesn't have the app, the consenting partner need only to provide their email address to give consent via email. If both parties are using the app, they'll both approve or decline consent via the app. Sex should be both safe and enjoyable. Safe consent gives you that reassurance and peace of mind. Show your respect and love for your partner. Now, that particular app is no longer around, but that's basically what it is. It's an app that allows you and your partner to digitize your consent. There's a record of it, and so that way if there's any question after the fact, there's a record that, yes, this was a consensual thing. Now, their first reports of a consensual app, I think, started almost like seven years ago. And so the concept has kind of been around, but it fades because, again, a lot of the pushback for just the common focus, hey, if you're in the throes of passion, do you really want to stop and get your phone out? I mean, how often do you look at the dinner table when you're someplace, maybe at a restaurant or something, maybe, you know, you're out and everybody's on their phone enough as it is. So people are kind of making fun of the fact that now you're going to get on your phone again and whip that out and get your consent going. And then there was, you know, safety, there is privacy issues, hackers, all kinds of things. And so, you know, it hasn't really taken off. I Like I said, I think there's one, maybe two that I saw in an app store that uh, is still viable. I don't know if anybody uses it, but it's kind of a, an interesting concept. But I like the proactive approach to the idea because after all, why not take that proactive step? But then again, also you start to think about what about personal responsibility? Shouldn't we as people be responsible? Shouldn't we value the other person? so that we don't take advantage of them. Again, it goes back to the heart issue. If I value a woman, then I'm not going to take advantage of her. 
I want the best for her. And if she says no, then it's no. But a lot of times if we look at them in a sexual a sexualized way as a sex object, then I don't care what they say and I'm going to do my my thing to them because I want to get my business done. Let me play another clip for you about another app that uh because there's some issues that came up or some ideas that came up that went beyond just the intimacy level. There's other ways that you can use a consent app. And so this was a uh, a video that I saw with some audio that kind of describes some other ways, but it sets the table in the intimacy issue. And then it goes into maybe some other areas that a consent app could be good for. A new app is about to hit the market in the next few weeks. One that's specifically designed to encourage discussion about affirmative consent between intended sexual partners and will ultimately reduce false allegations of rape, making sex safer for everyone. Yes, queen. Though the price of the app has not been announced, the app is called We Consent and it takes less than 20 seconds to use. The app asks the first user for his or her name and then the name of the intended partner, then instructs the user to find the partner and point the back camera of the phone towards that partner's face. The partner is asked to state his or her name and is then informed that the original user desires sexual relations. Hubba hubba. The partner indicates yes or no, and in the absence of a definitive yes, the app will destroy the videos and ask the users to try again. If all goes well, WeConsent creates a seven-year encrypted record that is only available to law enforcement upon judicial order or as evidence in a college or university sexual assault disciplinary proceeding. Not even the user is allowed to access the videos, let alone hackers, though I'm sure someone will try. Now, the biggest argument against this app seems to be that the actual act of giving consent is just a huge boner killer. But if you ask me, and you didn't, giving consent is the best foreplay. Because nothing turns my undies into a state fair dunk tank quite like audibly hearing that somebody actually wants to have sex with me. And having that turn into evidence that's admissible in court? Ah, God bless. No, but seriously, it only takes 20 seconds to avoid a future life-ruining lawsuit. And now to change the dirty subject, other than consenting to sex, there are also so many other alternative options that would be just as easy to consent to by using an app like this one. For example. Yes, I'd like to try the spiciest pepper in the world. Yes, I would like this Botox in my face. Yes, I do want to get this tattoo. Yes, I would like to eat at this restaurant with a C rating. Yes, I would like to take motorcycle lessons. Why, yes, I would like to close my bank account. Yes, I do want to jump out of this airplane. Yes, I definitely want to be on your hidden camera prank show. Yes, I would like to marry this man. Hubba hubba indeed. So the concept of consent came out of the the academia, the college. There was a, a college somewhere, and I think it spread rather quickly, but there was a college somewhere that was really struggling with uh, sexual assaults on campus, and so someone came up with a written form, or actually a paper that you'd fill out years and years ago, and that was your consent form. And then now, of course, in the digital age, you've gone to this app. But is it something you would use? Is it something that's interesting? Is it something that uh, we should continue to try to to strive for or should consent be something that isn't technological a device something else but again make it personal responsibility because again just like racism consent or taking advantage of somebody based on you know who they are and a lot of times there's a lot of power play involved because if someone says no and i say yes but you say no but i'm gonna continue with my yes there becomes this power dominant thing involved and so there's a lot of issues that spring up from that as well. But again, it goes back to that personal responsibility. So yeah, you can have an app and you can have consent forms and you can have all these cool things that we think are going to help. But again, we're trying to allow or have other outside things dictate our behavior. We should have the personal responsibility to know 
and to act appropriately and accordingly. We shouldn't have to have all these other things out there dictate to us. So I give applause to the police commissioner in New South Wales, Australia, for coming up with an idea or at least talking about it or suggesting some out-of-the-box thinking, even though there might have been some ridicule and pushback, because when you get outside that box, you start to come up with all kinds of cool ideas than things that might be different and things that might work. And so the app might not be something that sticks and might not be something that works and might not be something that's comfortable because there's all kinds of issues with it, apparently. But at least it's thinking about things and how we could start to help those and take proactive steps towards preventing something because especially when it comes to sex crimes, a lot of times it's reactionary. The crime happened, the assault happened, and then we have to start. And so it's just something I thought that was unique because, you know, if we're starting to look at things, okay, and we're looking at things in this world because today in today's climate, there's a lot of -of out-of-the-box things going on, some good, some bad. But if we start thinking outside the box, maybe we start to, affect change when it comes to racism if we start thinking outside the box okay racism is skin color well what if we start looking at people with through through the lens of ethnicity through heritage not skin color if we change our hearts and we start valuing people maybe that starts to affect change if we have understanding if we have forgiveness if we sympathize and empathize like steve harvey said maybe that affects change we don't know But it seems like the things that we're doing now aren't necessarily working. Racism continues. Stop Asian hate now is trending. And so apparently, even though it's been there, apparently it's increased in the last year because who knows why, but a lot of people speculate because the virus was from China. But I suspect that it's always been there. It just hasn't been reported on by the news. And again, like Red Barber said, he reported properly about the things of Jackie Robinson. We don't get reported on properly. The news dictates our opinion. We listen to the news, they opinionize the news, and then we start to believe. We go to social media, and we look on what social media is telling us. We look on Twitter, what's Twitter telling us, and then we start to believe that. And then a lot of times, the narrative of what we're told through social media, the news, and so forth, isn't the truth. And later on, the truth comes out, and it's something completely different than what the narrative was at the time. And so we have to take that approach, that outside-the-box approach and how we're going to understand things. How are we going to understand the news? Are we going to do our own research? Are we going to do our own investigation? Have our own conversations with other people? Try to understand the culture. Start to realize that, yes, I may go to my neighbor's house who are from Mexico, and I might get fried chicken, mashed potatoes, and corn, which I absolutely love. And I'm not just going to sit there and expect carne asada, burritos, and tacos. Now, I eventually got them. And they were tremendous as well. They came over to my place. I don't remember what I served them. Probably hot dogs because that's about the barbecue, right? Put it on the grill. But it was the communion of the people, the neighbors coming together, talking, sharing, telling the story. You know, here's two people from Mexico, went to Texas, got married at 18, right out of high school, took off to Iowa to enjoy the snow because they wanted to be in snow and were there for a long time, 30-some years, whatever it was. That's when we start to get connected people to people is when we start to get down on that level where we communicate and we realize that there's one race the human race we might be different because of ethnicity because of our heritage because of places we come but that's all good when we have an understanding that we are people and we all have value and we all have equal value despite who we are and where we come from
This is Two Steps Ahead podcast, highlighting the stuff that's been stepped in so you don't have to. Son Edom is my name. Hey, there's a couple of uh, Instagram sites you can check out. The show Instagram site is at Two Steps Ahead Podcast, T-W-O, Two Steps Ahead Podcast. And then my personal uh, Instagram is at Edom Rocks, E-I-D-E-M-R-O-C-K-S, at Edom Rocks. Now, on both, there's a link in the bio. It's a link tree link. You click it and a page comes up with multiple choices. And you've got YouTube, so you can watch the videos there on YouTube. You can go to Spotify, Pandora, and listen to the audio podcast, or you can listen to the audio podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts or everywhere. There's a swag shop, so you can get some cool merchandise if you'd like to support the show. Hats, shirts, drinkware, um, all kinds of cool stuff. Polos, different sizes, different colors. There's even a customization, so if you don't like the full logo, you can make a little logo, like over a pocket size logo over your... Uh, chest area so there's all kinds of cool things there and so uh you can go it's the swag shop and then there's a uh, radio warp radio warp is a link to an online streaming radio station and we stream live tuesdays 10 p.m pacific time radio warp warp.com and so there's a link there for that we can also hear the show two steps head podcast uh on mondays and wednesdays on radio warp.com 11 a.m and 8 p.m pacific time plus some other podcasts, some great music, some pop music, and some other things. So, again, Radio Warp is an online streaming station that we're on, and you can check that out as well. You can also email the show at twostepsheadpodcast at gmail.com, twostepsheadpodcast, T-W-O, and if you, uh, at Gmail, and if you just are lost, don't know where to go, just Google search Two Steps Ahead Podcast, T-W-O, Two Steps Ahead Podcast, and we pop up. Two Steps Ahead Podcast, highlight the stuff that's been stepped in so you don't have to. Hey, thanks for listening. Do tell, a, uh, do tell a friend. We really appreciate you listening to the show and being a part of it. If there's something that, again, you'd like to um, communicate with, you can DM me on Instagram or Two Steps Ahead Podcast at gmail.com and send me an email. Take your passion. Make it happen. Let yourself be great. Be kind. And we'll see you next time. They're on Two Steps Head Podcast.